0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sociology. This is your hostess, Annie Sepukaya. Today, we are talking to the authors of The Enigmatic Academy, Class, Bureaucracy, and Religion in American Education. One of the authors is Kristen J. Churchill. He is a professor of sociology at St. Thomas Aquinas College, author of numerous articles in sociology, and a licensed psychoanalyst in private practice in Manhattan. Gerald E. Levy is a sociologist, and the author of Ghetto School, Class Warfare in an Elementary School. He taught at the college level for 40 years and is now retired. This book takes a comprehensive and critical look at the American educational system by using three different case studies, an upper class liberal arts college in New England, an elite prep school for kids of wealthy parents who have deviated from upper class norms, and an educational center for the American working class. The Enigmatic Academy points out the paradox between the bureaucratization of educational institutions and the liberal free-thinking values that they claim to hold. Christian, let's start with you. What is the paradox in the American educational system?
1: Uh, Such as we've described it, um, points students toward a critical perspective on uh, mainstream institutions while simultaneously preparing them to participate in those institutions And in fact, to um, perpetuate the agendas that they find within those institutions, that's really a lot of the paradox that we're after here. And so, if somebody is thinking about personal success, our book is not necessarily about how education steers them away from that necessarily. Though the job corps case study may be an exception in that sense, Um, but rather the success the success that's at issue here is success of one's personal ideological commitment and how tenable that becomes once you enter the institutional training of these various institutions and then encounter the expectations of employers thereafter.
0: So it's not so much that um, institutionalized education doesn't prepare you for jobs in the workplace. It does but it doesn't um, quite offer the liberal or critical mindset that they um, advertise?
1: Yes, and Jerry, maybe you want to take this up too, but I think yeah. that's, that's closer. To what well,
2: uh, uh, two things. Um, first of all, that uh, as we point out in the conclusion, even for the broad middle classes, success is problematical despite their good education, because the jobs are so few. The second point I would like to make is that uh, one of the reasons we wrote the book was try to, to try to answer the question of why is it in the educational world all of these ideologies of progress are part and parcel of liberal arts education and other kinds of education and why are things so bad? That is to say, why is um, the society in which we're living um, in its foreign and domestic policy seem to be the opposite of that where in our educational institutions, we are committed to values and training people to do things which they seem incapable of doing once they get into the system. So there must be something in the educational world which prepares people both, which, which caters to and supports their idealistic, liberal, sometimes radical, progressive inclinations, at the same time prepares them to enter the bureaucratic world where they become the, um, the uh, supporters of the very policies which in their educational lives and in their idealistic lives they oppose. That presented a problem to us which we wanted to solve by actually describing in a number of ways what educational institutions actually do.
0: Right. So you guys did um a case studies with three separate schools and could you describe um you know these three schools and the differences between them cuz you looked at at different kinds of schools, different ages as well.
1: Yeah, they are um they are rather distinct and uh which is what attracted to us to them as case studies. Um Jerry, would you like to answer this, or would you like me to field it?
2: Oh, I think you can take a crack at that, CJ. Okay, uh,
0: <laughs> um,
1: sure. Yeah, and uh, feel free to cut in as I as I answer the question. Um, so there are three case studies in the book. In brief, one is a um, uh, an alternative uh, liberal arts college, very small liberal arts college in the Northeast. The second school is um, uh, the second school, which we call Mountain View School, is. A very small boarding school for uh, more or less upper class boys who've been um, expelled from prestigious prep schools, often boarding schools, and then the third case study is the United States Job Corps Center, which provides um, job training to youth who uh, are from either rural or inner city areas and um, haven't often haven 't completed high school. Um, may have some ambitions for college, and, uh, but really are being channeled toward um, trade union jobs. At least that's the history of the Job Corps.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, now, what actually brought us to write about each of these places is a little bit, um, well, it's very specific. In other words, the, the first college we both had, the first school, uh, Ploufort College, we have mm-hmm. very uh, deep ties to each of us and have experienced it, Um, From the positions of um, student and professor, Uh, and uh, in fact, that's how we got to know each other in the first place. And we figured that uh, when we first started working on this book, that it was a Ploufort was a really nice example of how uh, education for the new middle classes—that is, the the staff, the people who will become the staff of bureaucracies and and, corporations—and Uh, the arts and the military uh, as distinct from the old middle class of more independent professionals that Plufort was a good case study of how people get prepared for these new middle class professions while at the same time being rigorously prepared in the curriculum of the school to critique those things. Um, And uh, we had an immense amount of data at our uh, research at our fingertips from all of our experience. And uh, after writing up that first case study and publishing it as an article, um, we realized that we had the beginnings of a, of a book on our hands. But the problem of course was, how do you get that depth of ethnographic material for representative case studies of lower and, and upper class education? In, or, in other words, to fill in the three levels that we were after. Right. And so um, as these things happen to ethnographers, um, by chance, I was hired to be a housemaster and an English teacher at Mountain View school and uh, it quickly became apparent to me that uh, to both Jerry and me because we were meeting visiting all while I was working at this school for two years that um it was a it was a good uh, bookend to forth in that the kids who were brought to Mountain View are effectively were the school is trying to rescue them from um, having fallen out of grace with the upper class in a number of ways and give them a way to return to that class, um, albeit through an alternative route and maybe with an alternative future ahead of them within that upper class milieu. And then, uh, so both of these first two case studies, Ploufort and Mountain View um, came to us, by way of lived experience, converted into research. The mm-hmm. third case study, the Job Corps, we had to go after um, in more uh, in a sort of more constructed, organized way. And in a nutshell, it took us about a year and a half of contacting people at the Department of Labor to finally be allowed to spend a year doing field work at this Job Corps Center, um, which we um, approached as more typical um, participant observers, of coming from the outside, entering the inside of the culture, and then spending lots and lots of time just in living through the experience of the campus of the Job Corps Center, talking to people, eating with them, interviewing them, attending events with them, all that kind of stuff. And uh, that then became our third case study. And so each of these case studies has a different origin. Um, but um, they all fit into this, this project of describing uh, the pursuit of what we call secular redemption um, in each of these uh, social class levels, um, the schools that service each of these social class levels.
0: Yeah, you do mention um, that term secular redemption quite often in the book. Um, what exactly do you mean by that?
2: Julie? Well, I think <laughs> I think what we mean is that um, people who find themselves in different places in society may or may not be formally religious, and if they are formally religious, their lifestyle and sincerely religious, they are attempting to be true to certain values which are uh, part of the world great religions. Uh, but people who um, uh, people who are formerly religious may have values of a secular nature that are just as important as their religious values. For example, um, and may and need to feel redeemed from a world which has um, uh, been problematic or disfavored them. So, for example, the young people in the Job Corps, for them, the training that will lead them to a job uh, redeems them from perhaps the sin of lower class life. Um, the 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 middle class um, students at Bluefort often come from backgrounds where they are um, uh, alienated from society, and the curricula which they study at the society everything from feminism to multiculturalism to um, uh sometimes uh radical political ideologies it can be as varied as the curriculum their attachment to those ideologies which are driving the curriculum um and their attachment to the process the community life in blue fort which um promises them uh that that th- this will be an important um uh uh event in your life, not just in in terms of the the result, but in terms of the process, living in the community, participating in the democracy of the community, having a close relationship with a mentor, all of that points towards uh, a redemption from problematics in their life which they may attach to um, their education, although they may not call it. Secular redemption. You see what I mean? They al- yes. they almost never do call
1: it that. <laughs> they they would <laughs> they they would, they would they would withdraw from the label. I think, but but it is it's our contention as jury is 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 really um, clearly describing to to try to explain how it is in fact a quest for redemption.
0: Interesting. So in a way education, or what most people look for in terms of, um, especially with college and with liberal arts, is this kind of, um, well, I guess there's this image of when you go off to college, you're going to somehow change the world, or there's this, well, illusion, I think you even call it an illusion, of um, making the world better. But you say that um, all three of these schools actually end up perpetuating the status quo. How does that happen? Uh, Jerry.
2: Well, um, it, it happens because um, it happens differently f- for people from different social classes. Um, if if you are a uh, idealistic, ideologically driven, redemptively d- driven um, uh, student, mm-hmm. and you believe that through environmental studies. You're going to save the world by um, uh, engaging in, in environmentally redemptive activities and you're fifty thousand dollars in debt at the end of your education and you try and get a job working in the environmental field, and you say, "Well, you might be able to get something for twenty or twenty five thousand dollars a year, or if you're an architect who believes that urban planning Will save the inner cities, and then you go and work for an architectural firm which is bent on making money and building skyscrapers, and you discover that in your work you can only engage in a kind of almost very organized part of the architectural process over which you have no control so so the the The, the alienation which comes from occupational work where most of the jobs in government, in uh, the military, in um, uh, the corporate world, even in the arts, are um, attempts to uh, make money and maybe in, in tension with the idealistic notions that people have. So while they are prepared to engage in um, world-changing, personally redemptive activities, they often find that their ability to do things is very limited. Take our president, Obama, and and the the the, the problematics between his idealistic speeches and what he's able to accomplish. To so to a certain extent, as a national security bureaucrat, who in order to be elected president in the first in the first place had to um, uh, be acceptable to an establishment which then would allow him to be a serious candidate. Well, I think Obama's problem is really the problem of everyone, uh, particularly those people who are most idealistic and may be critical of the society and want to change it. So what we discovered in our um, odyssey through these schools and other schools too is that there's a kind of double education going on. There's a support of the idealistic intentions of people to change themselves and through changing themselves, change the world. And then there's the way in which they relate to the bureaucratic process within these schools and the demands of organizations, all of which have agendas that come from the top which are often in tension with the very things that the uh, students who are aspiring lawyers, doctors, politicians, artists want to change, mm-hmm. and oh, so we try—we try and describe that process in in all of its complexities in these three schools.
0: Now, in the school um, where the kids are still in high school, which I believe is Mountain View, correct?
2: That's right, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, where they're in prep school. Um, you said that they're they're trying to kind of mold them back into being uh, the upper-class students that they, they think they should be, um, but they've actually been rejected or they've been on the fringes of that kind of upper-class society. Um, do you mean in terms of... Um, use that is just uh, like delinquency or is it just a matter of not fitting into upper class life?
1: Well, in, um, in Mountain View there's, there's a range of, of ways in which these students uh, have not fit in to the upper class uh, scenarios that they find at these prep schools and boarding schools. and um, I think in a kind of summary statement about them one could say that what they are effectively rejecting in their behavior, and by behavior I mean perhaps drug use, refusal to obey rules in school, um, um, alternative styles of dress and 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 uh, and behavior in um, the classroom and and amongst their peers. What they're doing in this is, in one way or another, um, visibly rejecting the. Ethos of um, the privilege, which is uh, justified through claiming that one has earned it by working very hard at these schools. Um, that's a lot of what these these young men reject. And uh, what I'm thinking about specifically is uh, Seamus Rahman Khan's book *Privilege*, in which he describes at a very elite prep school um, in New Hampshire how the students who are at that school often Uh, see their situation and the advantages that um, attach to it, um, they see it as something which they have, in fact, in one way or another, earned um, by way of their very diligent work within the curriculum of that school. And they're trained by the school, in a certain sense, not to really uh, look um, very much at the privileged um, situation that they're born into, and the connections that lead them into this place uh, that lets them have a position at a school like that, and then all the future advantages that it brings to it. These boys at Mountain View School, um, you could say that, even though they wouldn't articulate it in this sense, that they're, rejection, they're rejecting that ethos in one way or another. And the class from which they, um, they emerge doesn't want to accept their rejection. And so there's a range of schools that they encounter before Mountain View, um, more therapeutically calibrated schools, schools that are designed to, um, you know, have very uh, sort of rigorous um, uh, sort of re-education programs to um, socialize these boys back into the places where they came from. Boys who end up at Mountain View school have often been through a few of those places and none of the re-education has worked. And so their parents often come to Mountain View, at least at the time of this research, uh, saying that we've tried everything and now we need you to achieve the fix that has not worked elsewhere. And what we have determined by way of the research that they're really asking of Mountain View is to cultivate these boys deviance into something which is tolerable and also useful. To the class from which they emerged.
0: Mm-hmm. Would you say as well that perhaps these boys are actually more aware of the privilege that they come from and are more bothered by it? I
2: would. I would say that they are tremendously bothered by it. That they. Um, that. Um, and one of the reasons they're bothered by it is because. Uh, it has been so easy for them in some ways. They know they'll never lack for money, but they are expected to be successful. Their parents mm-hmm. have been inordinately successful. So the anxiety of approaching um, a situation in which your parents are, um, you know, very successful business people or mm-hmm. successful in government or highly placed in the liberal professions. Um, can be very um, anxiety-provoking and uh, they rebel against it by rejecting the self-discipline, gentility, ability to present yourself in a socially acceptable manner, ability to perform by doing the exact opposite, opposite as, as often students in other social classes do in their youth culture. That is to say, they... They cultivate styles of activity, which are exactly opposite of what is expected as a successful adult. But these students do it so much and so um, uh, intensely that they are kicked out of the prep schools that they are in. And then uh, one thing that C. Day didn't mention: the school for many years was run by a very, very successful upper class. Um, an um, educator, you would call him a Boston Brahmin, and he has the um, both the understanding and empathy with the boys and the ability to communicate to them how they might possibly return to the fold by exhibiting a modicum of gentility in the right places, but will still be able to... Um, um, uh, practice their deviant uh, behavior elsewhere as long as it doesn't um, interfere with uh, with with the work they're going to do, um, so that so that the 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 educational process of return is very complex. Um, see what I mean?
0: Yeah. So they're trying to kind of uh, channel that kind of. Um, rebellion into perhaps something more creative, something more acceptable.
1: Yeah, so, something more creative, something more acceptable. And um, I would add to this, I'm glad that Jerry brought up the, the Boston Brahmin, who we call Rod Bales in this case study, um, that uh, in this case, as opposed to the Ploufort College case, um, in the case of Mountain View School, it is perhaps more the school that is on the redemptive mission than the students'. Um, that, as the school is trying to redeem these boys to bring them back into the fold and to show them that it is possible to um, to to be deviant but tempered in such a way that it is still acceptable and let me just give one little illustration from my own experience and this is mentioned in a footnote in the book uh, when I interviewed at the school i was uh, it was a you know full day interview and I went over to Rod's house in the evening um, for a cocktail and uh, we were sitting there chatting and I told him I wanted to be fully upfront about this. I told him that I was gay and he was fully accepting, no problem, and said, I'm very glad that you told me this. Then he said, "Um, you can never let anyone know. And if you do disclose it, I'll deny that I knew anything. And I think that, you know, now um, it's a a whole separate issue as to why I, in my early 20s, would be willing to go through that. But part of it is I wanted the research. And um, and I also thought the school was very interesting. But uh, but he was effectively telling me that what he would see as my deviance, that would have been his perception of it, I think Mm -hmm. Um, what he saw as my deviance was not a problem but also had to be managed in such a way that it didn't become a problem for the institution's agenda. And it had to
2: be segment excuse me for um, it had to be segmented from his occupational life. Right. In the same way that the upper class boy deviants are asked to segment their deviants, their drug taking, their their drinking alcohol, their um uh, what some would call vulgar behavior from what is sociably acceptable in occupationally successful society, mm-hmm. so in a sense, That's as a staff member he was he was asked to do what it's uh, what we all have to do in a way to segment our deviant and perhaps more idealistic lies from. Life in the bureaucracy, which controls to a certain extent uh, the vast majority of the work that takes place in this society.
0: Right. So it's it's kind of like you're allowed to have these things that are considered to be unacceptable, but uh, but you're not allowed to talk about them. Or, yeah. Or, you know. When when I was
2: a psychodrama intern uh, at Saint Elizabeth Hospital um, many many years ago. Um, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis was happening. I happened to be a uh, student activist at the time, and uh, I was resolved to, uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, demonstrate um, at the White House uh, over the Cuban Missile Crisis. This was in 1963. My supervisor found out about it, and he said, Well, you know, uh, you're a government employee. I'm not going to criticize you for having your radical values, but if you make them public, you'll be fired. Mm-hmm. So it's really the same. It's 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 a very graphic way in which all of us, to a certain extent, have to make certain compromises in our deepest values, and and we're not asked. They don't say, "Well, you you can you can have any politics you want, just don't let it." Um, enter into your public life in the occupational, bureaucratic world. And all of us are taught how to make those distinctions. The problem with these upper-class boys is that they refuse to do that on principle. And Mm -hmm. so so the task of the school was to find a person who identified with them enough and understood them well enough to guide them back and convince them that, well, it might not be such a bad idea for you to uh, go back to prep school or go to mm-hmm. some college.
0: Right. That's that's quite an interesting um, thing that the bureaucracy asks for, though, because it's kind of the culmination of um, the industrial age of where you know, the, your personal life and your work life are completely separate, as, almost as if you were two separate yeah. people.
2: And that's one of the classic assumptions of one of the great sociologists who influenced our work. Max mm-hmm. Weber, in his classic essay on bureaucracy, makes that point again, that bureaucracy is the separation of one's personal life from one's occupational life, so, and so that the bureaucracy can actually um, create and sustain a predictable, uh, predictable, predictable policy in which um, bureaucrats can be counted upon to uh, fulfill the agenda of the people who control the bureaucracy. Right, and the and these schools these schools are
1: effectively training grounds for how to achieve the split, how to uh, uh, how to manage that split within the self that, as Jerry saying, Weber describes, and um and and part of how they do it, I think, is you know one could refer to Weber's other great essay, uh, "Religious Rejections of the World and Their Directions," by in in that um, these schools train these students to cultivate their what we call secularly religious rejections of the world and maintain them with great vigor um, and, uh, and have them be a source of on, an ongoing sense of redemption, even as uh, these students go on to accommodate themselves to the agendas of bureaucracies with which they are quite opposed um, at some internal ideological level.
0: So in a way, it kind of teaches them just how to survive in in a world of bureaucracy,
2: basically. Yeah. Yes, and and I think think we could further state that that is a way then in which if you accept the assumption which the mainstream press is talking about all the time that Mm -hmm. the vast majority of money, resources is going to the top and Mm -hmm. has been consistently since uh, at least uh, the late 70s, probably earlier, that then bureaucracy becomes not only a way of controlling individuals, but controlling individuals in such a way, and we say this in our conclusion, that it is is the middle classes in uh, in their positions as managers, professional bureaucrats, uh, at all levels of the bureaucracy, some well-paid, some not so well-paid, which support a process which eventually uh, supports the dominance of the upper classes. So, if if you were to ask today, well, which somebody, which, which everybody is agreeing upon now, no matter what your ideological position, that the vast amount of wealth. Seems to be concentrated at the top. How is this achieved organizationally, and what role does education at all levels play in this? Yes, and I I just That, that, that that that's the larger question that we attempt to address in our study. It's not just that people are trapped in their positions and have to segment their occupation or lies from their personal lives, it's that the process through which this done, this is done feeds mm-hmm. um, a larger process in which um, the upper classes sustain their wealth and power mm-hmm. and the middle classes, by and large, assist right. the upper classes in doing this through their occupational roles and their roles as bureaucrats And the lower classes, who we haven't discussed very much yet, how do they come to accept their role? And we try and um, at least raise those issues in our last essay.
1: Yeah, but I would like to, before we get on to that last essay, I'd like to just say something about what you've been describing, Jerry, because I think this is a really vital um, element in the book as a whole that is how the middle classes are made use of by the upper classes and the larger power structure. And to point to specific ethnographic details, um, in the Mountain View case study, we spend a good amount of time describing how Rod Bales, who's from the Boston upper class going well back into the 19th century, very old money, how he manages to make peace with the middle-class faculty who he, who he must recruit if the school is to function as a school on the terms of the state in which it exists. I mean, the, 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 the actual state um, in the United States in which it exists, dealing with their educational bureaucracy. Um, he needs these middle-class people to join in his project. And so they are tolerated and made use of while also being kept at a certain kind of distance. Now, that's Mountain View. In the Job Corps, um, the staff and faculty at that place are filled with uh, middle-class um, professionals who believe, deep, who believe deeply in um, rescuing these kids from poverty. And most, most of them give every ounce of energy they have to making it work. Um, but the system in which they do it is calibrated it seems, to um, preventing that, that final success from happening. And so as long as a place like the Job Corps can make use of these middle class professionals, it can go on doing what its ultimate agenda may be um, while maintaining the kind of patina of, of, of salvation for the lower classes that it presents as its front, as its um, you know, stated purpose.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how how do the lower classes feed into this cycle? We talked about how the middle class kind of um, almost uh, accepts the uh, bureaucratization or perhaps isn't aware of it. I think most people don't really think about how, um, you know, even if we say, oh, there's so much inequality and the rich are getting richer and so forth. Um, it's really, on an individual level, we just think, OK, well, how can I you know get a better job or a better position? Um how did the lower classes um deal with that? Right.
1: Well, I I mean the, the um jury, um, maybe you want to speak to this in a moment. Let me just say something right at the outset which is that um those middle classes, I'm not sure if it's necessarily that they don't know um the bind that they're in, but their own private agendas of um uh you know what they want in their personal lives. Uh, may uh, may rise above whatever their critical perspective is on the bureaucracy. In the case of the lower class students at the Job Corps, this is very interesting, I think. They are vividly aware of what um, seems to be going on in this place and are have developed a very sophisticated critical analysis of it, maybe not spoken in academic terms such as we might, but um, but in just the way they describe their everyday lives at the job corps, they have a sense that they're being used, and mm-hmm. they can point to evidence um, um, to make the case. And as any reader of our book will see, and the, we fill that job corps case study with the perspectives of these these young people as they strive for something better and ha- find themselves sort of hitting up against. Um, a a rigged situation which doesn't seem to want to let them get much success at all. And so what they say um, over and over to us is, this place is like a prison. Now, many students might say that about schools and one might just dismiss it as, oh, that's just kids speaking. But these students mean it in a different way. And they know that um, the corporations that the government hires to run job core centers are also often making a lot of their money in running private prisons. And the way in which the Job Corps, as we encountered it, was organized, um, resembled nothing other than um, a prison in many ways, uh, lacking all of the um, more comfortable qualities that Mountain View and uh, Ploufort College have within their confines. Um, even, all the while, if you look at it at, on the basis of per capita spending, the government is spending, according to one study that we found in the research, um, spending the equivalent per kid at the Job Corps of what it would cost to send somebody to Harvard for a year.
2: And uh, furthermore, um, uh, even um, uh, uh, the vast majority of people who go to the Job Corps come from poverty cultures where uh, uh, the schools um, to a great extent have been abandoned the infrastructure is broken down, there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of violence. This has been described over and over again, uh, ethnographically and otherwise, and by journalists. Um, they, they come to the Job Corps recruited by people who are promising them that, oh, it's going to be like a college, and when they get there, um, in innumerable ways, they discover that it's very much like the um, the mm-hmm. milieu in which they've learned to survive. In uh, a certain amount of the um, students actually feel it's better and and identify with the program, uh, but but many don't. But here's here's the rub: to the extent that the program is successful. These people are being trained mostly for jobs in the service sector that are minimum wage or a little better, and if you count up what they're going to make, uh, it's often at the poverty level or just a little better. So the promise of a job is not a job that's going to pay them a kind of middle class wage where they can afford maybe an apartment or um, the 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 version of the American Dream, which is different from all other social classes, they are being trained for jobs that are slightly better than unemployment, and many of these people um, actually prefer going into um uh less uh, less legal occupations because they can make more money and actually have more status doing things which are illegal and and so these students are asked to give up um, their lower class youth culture so that they might um, learn to um, be uh, you know Americans, middle class citizens. And they discover the hypocrisy in that. And so many return to the streets from which they've come, the gangs from which they've come. Many of them end up in prisons. Some of them end up in mental hospitals. Some of them um, may improve their life. But when we try to get statistics from the Department of Labor as to um, basically the the um, economic structure of 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 the job corps and um, what was the re- relationship of profit to infrastructure to the money that was paid um, students how they were relieved of that money through infractions, the jobs they get we were we were not able to um, they wouldn't give us the information. And finally we we um we went on the uh uh what is it called, CJ um uh you know, when you want to get information from the government that you're entitled to. Oh yeah, yeah. Freedom of infor- freedom of information. Uh yeah, you know, they they, yeah. they wanted us to pay a, a huge sum of money. So basically they didn't want us to give us the information um so that we might find out in greater depth the the, the economic structure and consequences mm-hmm. of what this training meant what what we saw was um a a situation in which most of the classes um very little education was going on um, where uh five hundred uh young people were um concentrated into Um, a very, very small space with, uh, you know, a social ecology which probably is worse than some of the better-equipped prisms.
0: That's kind of interesting. It reminds me of um, this idea that we have of uh, recently arrived immigrants to the United States, that they do jobs that uh, most people in the middle and upper classes you know, wouldn't be caught dead doing. And it seems like this uh, Job Corps Center also kind of teaches the lower classes to do exactly those jobs, those jobs that need to be done or else society would fall apart, yeah. uh, but that other people don't want to do. Is that fair to say?
2: Yes, it's more than fair. And, and I think we would further say that through this education and through their um, life in other lower-class bill the larger society communicates to these youth what they can Mm -hmm. expect out of life Mm -hmm. and so um, what options do they have? well some of them through a sheer act of will um, kind of somehow get out of that way of life and a fair amount go to college and get jobs into the middle class to the extent that these jobs are available they seem to be getting less and less available not only for the lower classes the aspiring lower classes but the middle classes a fair number of these students give up and return to milieus that they are familiar with and the youth culture which is the exact opposite of what the Job Corps claims to want them to rid themselves in. And in a very uh, tragic way, as we see in so many lower-class milieus, these youth turn on each other.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Christian, how would you say that this relates to the issue of people voting against their own interests, because we do hear that a lot. And this myth of American meritocracy, that as long as you work hard, you will make it. And using exceptions to kind of romanticize that entire view, like saying, oh, well, Oprah made it, so can you, uh, which are messages that the media definitely feeds us on a daily basis. Um, How does that relate to voting, you think?
1: relating to to people voting against their own interests. Yes. Uh, Well, I guess you could say, uh, if we're stepping back and looking at the book as a whole, that, um, you know, and I guess especially in the Ploufort case study, that uh, people are, by way of these um, educational institutions, they're encouraged to believe that the system contains within itself the means of its own correction, um, the way for it to, uh, you know, it contains the, the, it's, it, the capacity to make itself better. Now, if if that's what you're taught um, and you're made to believe it through a near um, religious uh, form of um, indoctrination, you'll hold yeah. on to that view. And so let me just give a couple of quick examples um, from the case studies. In the Pluford case study, One of the defining qualities of this college is its um, commitment to participatory democracy. And so within the college structure, students, staff, and faculty all participate in um, uh, monthly democratic um, – they get together and they decide on bylaws and debate issues on campus. And and this is celebrated as the epitome of um, the American ideal of participatory democracy. So they, they go through this institution both being trained in the curriculum to be socially critical, but also being um, imbued with a sense that, at base, um, democracy such as we find it in the United States has within it the seeds of um, its own salvation. Uh, in the case of the um, Job Corps, uh, the faculty and staff engaged in a kind of language that was, more, um, that was more explicitly religious in its tone than we found in either of the other two institutions. A kind of evangelistic um, preaching to the students in secular terms, that um, if they just maintained their faith in the process um, and endured the often quite punitive sanctions against minor infractions that that process put upon them, that this would then be the path to salvation, Um, uh, you know, one thinks of um, the, the religious supplicant sort of with a whip to his or her back making it through. And so in that case, the person is again saying that as long as you have enough faith in the system, it will change itself. And what we're really saying in this book is that the system contains within itself its own the the motives of its own agendas, which it does not want to change. And so, if people are voting against their interests, in summary, it's because they're taught to, and maybe also because it's just too difficult to face the fact sometimes that um, that this is what you're being asked to do. And so, one finds various ways to avoid that truth.
0: Do
2: you see any hope, Jerry, for getting out of this paradox? Yes. If you read the quote by Hannah Rent, um, which we quote two of her pithy paragraphs from the preface to the origins of totalitarianism, we say, in a sense, if I can paraphrase what she's saying, Mm -hmm. that gloom and doom and illusory optimism are both ways to avoid responsibility and that con- and that the 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 goal the the purpose of the intellectual uh sociologist whatever you want to call is to is to comprehend is to understand and to describe them th- things as they are um relentlessly and that that is the beginning of resistance. Um, The other thing I think we say in the book is that um, in these fine um, uh, liberal arts schools where progressive ideologies of all sorts are supported, um, while um, students are being trained both to support their ideologies and enter the system they have the existential choice of not entering the system. They have the existential choice of trying to be true to their ideals, whatever they may be. Of course, this can um being true to one's ideals as we know, can always have a cost. One may not um, be able to make the money that one's hopes. you know there's all sorts of sacrifices that people have to make. If they're going to change the world, but I think ultimately so so that first of all people at all levels have an existential choice, no matter what the options seem to be and that and that secondly um that oh I think I lost my train of thought um that that oh the other point I want to make is that that these these redemptive ideologies as um as much as people may uh, use them to um, cover the fact that they are co-opted, these ideas about how to change things have a value whether they are immediately applicable or not. And so that in a way, these redemptive ideologies and the tradition of passing them on is in a certain way the only hope for real change. And as long as those ideas are kept alive, um, there there always is a hope that something may change and that in our own way, uh, we feel, uh, uh, and I think I can uh, speak for CJ also, that in writing this book, we are not trying to say that it's all wrapped up, that nothing can change, but that really if things are going to change, we have to address certain issues that it's very difficult to address because in our society most people believe if there's any hope it's education Mm -hmm. and we want to qualify that but in qualifying that and trying to be true to our own perceptions and our own analysis we are not saying that nothing Mm -hmm. can be done and I think if you read the conclusion um um carefully particularly the last couple of paragraphs you'll see that we are not uh gloom doom pessimists and that in itself according to our own values would be irresponsible and that's why we quote hannah rent in those first two paragraphs
1: yeah i you know i i i want to second everything that jerry just said and and um, you said it so well, Jerry, that I can't add much to it except just a, just a couple of things. One is, to reiterate, um, we believe very much in this idea that Arendt puts forward that, as Jerry said, gloom and doom and reckless optimism are two sides of the same problem, and that one has to be honest and, as she says, comprehend really what's going on as free of illusion as possible. And so, as as Jerry also said, the ideologies, the educational ideologies and other ideologies in these institutions, have much value in them. And this is part of why we selected the word enigmatic in the title of the book, because the very thing that causes the problem can also be the source of its solution. And, uh, um, and I think that uh, that's an important message for the, for the reader to come away with from this book. And, and one more point that I think is very important that we make in the introduction is that Jerry and I are um, completely um, entwined in these institutions ourselves in various ways. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've done the exact opposite of rejecting them because um, we are educators, students. um, We believe very much in liberal arts education. And, uh, you know, we've committed our lives to being um, active professionals within that uh, that milieu, And if we thought it was all gloom and doom, we'd have gone elsewhere. So I think that's an important element to the study and that a reader should would hopefully keep that in mind in reading what we've tried to present as honest and sometimes very difficult to um, to uh, to hear um, analyses of what's going on on the ground.
0: Uh, So if people are interested in buying your books, uh, where can they go to uh, to do that?
1: Um, well, there's a couple of options. One is uh, Temple University Press website has, uh, it would be easy enough to buy it through Temple University Press, it, and then Temple has its own web page dedicated to Enigmatic Academy. Um, of course, Amazon.com is, is, is there as well. Um, there's uh, paperback as well as um, hardcover and Kindle versions of the book as well. So you could get it in any of those three formats.
0: Okay. Um, Gerald Levy, Kristen Churchill, thank you so much for being on today. It's a really interesting conversation.
2: Thank you, Thank you.
0: We have been talking to Kristen J. Churchill and Gerald E. Levy, authors of The Enigmatic Academy, Class, Bureaucracy, and Religion in American Education. This is your host, Annie Sekulkaya. Thanks for listening to New Books in Sociology. See you next time.